So, hello everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of the Promptly Written Podcast. Uh, my name's Matt Garrick, and I'm joined by uh, fellow author Ian Lewis, and I think... Uh, I think the first thing that we should do is probably just introduce the concept to you. So Ian and I have known each other for quite a long time, and I think it's safe to say that when any sort of uh, topic or anything comes up, we, we tend to have a different perspective. So what we decided to do was um, take in a writing prompt, and then we were both going to write a story based on that prompt. And then we would get together, read our stories out loud to each other and to you, and then kind of talk about where our head was at when we uh, when we wrote that story. So essentially, it's a writing workshop in podcast form. And and I think we're going to start today by just kind of giving you an introduction to each one of us and then our first story. So, Ian, um, you want to take the first story or? Sure. sure. All right. Yeah. So, All right. Episode, so, zero. episode zero. All right. So what uh, what was the prompt that we decided to go for this time? The prompt was... Uh, this was the last thing I said to her. Ooh. Well, so that's pretty dark. Well, I mean, it could be, it depends it could on where be. you take it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, um, to let the listeners know at this point, neither of us have read, seen, heard anything about each other's work at this point. So, um, it is as new to, to me as it's about to be new to everybody. So Ian, why don't you go ahead and, uh, take us away. Sure. Uh, first, an introduction. I've been writing uh, in some form or another since about 2002. Uh, not seriously, though, until probably 2007 when I had the genesis for my first novella, which was called The Camaro Murders. Um, and then that kind of took off from there. Um, I had an idea that really intrigued me and uh, I've been writing since. Um, currently have three novellas and three no- uh, novels available. And why don't you go ahead and just tell everybody right now where they can go ahead and find those novellas. Well, if you if you go to ianlewisfiction.com, uh, that will give you the landing page for all of the books, um, the, the necessary links to find those books. But you can find them at the normal places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, places like that, um, where you can find things in ebook form. Uh, or if you buy from Amazon, you can also get print, you know, paperback. So yeah, I guess uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and start with my story. I, I gave it a title. I don't know that we ever decided whether we wanted to title them or I, not. I like the idea of having a title. I also did title mine. I mean, it's I don't think it's the most creative, and I think that uh, I was going to look to you for maybe a little inspiration okay. after you heard the story. Well, but. the one thing that Matt didn't indicate is that the idea is at the end of the year, um, we'd like to, to publish a compilation of that year's uh, story. So at, at that point, I think we'll have to have titles at least for some of them, right? Oh, yeah. They all can't Absolutely. be untitled. Absolutely. So uh, my story is called Bullets and Razor Wire. So, and we'll, we'll uh, get going then without, without further ado, right? I, I just want to say, uh, wow. <laughs> it'll, it'll all make sense by the end. I'm ready. All right. The light in Durker's pub is the same as always, perpetually waning and dingy with a blue haze of cigarette smoke, the yellow noxious kind smoked by the locals. There are the threadbare rugs and cheap silk curtains you'd see in any rat hole pub in Bolska, where the pale sun glares through the open windows. Outside, the dusty clamor of merchants and peddlers wafts in with the ever-present reek of cabbage and human stenches. Then there's the mournful whistle of the lurching steam engine that groans its way into the middle of town carrying refugees, some of whose stiff corpses lean against window panes or hang haphazardly out of boxcars. 
The living, whether injured or not, cling together in clusters of forlorn grief-like dogs who've been beaten into submission. Swarthy and sullen, their tattered shawls and ratty coats can't hide their bony frames. Any chance of making it safely to the bombed-out tarmac with the hope of flying out of their war-torn country is near futile. They know this as well as I, but they have no choice but to press onward. Kotvio was stuck in the middle when the first shots were fired. Corralled by enemies on one side and her professed allies on the other, Kotvia's farmland and waterways were divested in the interest of defeating the enemy once and for all. It's raged on this way for three years. I mentally retreat back into the pub. Around our usual table are Captain Smith and Lieutenant Dithers, the only two Englishmen left besides myself. Solid chaps, they've managed to keep their olive drab uniforms as fit for inspection as can be expected. Our regiment, embattled and beleaguered, was left behind with orders to stay it and see it through. Our remaining number has since dwindled due to attrition by desertion or death. Two women from the nursing service have joined us, Tessa on my right and Millie on hers. They are dependable girls, the kind you'd want stitching you up when bleeding out and grasping at the dregs of life. I've taken a liking to Tessa, the dark-haired one. Her pert eyes never lose their warmth even in the face of bleakness, not even when we question how long we'll be stuck in this miserable place. We trade smiles as we huddle around the wooden tabletop that's stained with condensation rings and marred with knife gouges. It's our refuge, our little cloister of normalcy. Cupping the filming glasses that hold the water down racky we drink, forcing a cheerfulness that dissipates from our faces quicker each day, we hold to some type of civility despite the boom of artillery from the front. Our enemies aren't all beyond the razor wire, though. There's the American named Souza, an expatriate who runs a brothel next door. He's a slippery bugger if there ever was one. Quick to make money and even quicker to count it. He's tried to sell us out more than once and even came close to claiming our lives. The five of us were sitting much the same as today, while Smith nursed a bruised rib and contusion in his arm. Ranging athletic, Smith sipped at his rocky and lit the occasional cigarette, wincing only slightly. The wave of his sandy hair and jut of his level chin carried with it the indefatigable confidence that bolstered us many a day. Dithers, who'd run out of snuff six months ago, had taken to a pipe, occasionally stroking his dark, drooping mustache with a careful thought that seemed more mechanical as the minutes wore on. His rounded shoulders hung heavy, but still retained a modicum of staunchness. We were interrupted by a ruckus outside. There were shouts and screams and the splinter of wood. Smith, ever the man of action, turned with his squinted hawk's glare and then leapt from his seat. I followed him outside with Dithers in tow. It was a melee of swinging limbs, flares of dust, and the smack of skin against skin as two men fought over a toppled wagon whose meager, wilted produce lay sprawled on the dusty cobblestone. Onlookers charged in for a better look and to call out their jeers, foaming at the mouth with crazed eyes. Action nor violence didn't hold our attention for long, so the three of us lapsed into the glazed-over stairs of those numbed by combat. It was in this unconscious slip that Morris found his opportunity. Morris was a rail of a young man, impoverished in life and in his mental faculties. His squirrely movements betrayed a sense of volatility when we first saw him skulking around the pub. One never knew whether his shifty eyes would glare, enlarge, and then fire the daggers he reserved for the foreigners in his country. I'd seen it before. Morris toe-to-toe with a member of our regiment, spit flying as he shouted into the man's face. Leave my country, you pigs, he would shout in broken English before settling into a rapid-fire cadence of his own dialect. I was so accustomed to seeing Morris around that I barely registered seeing him next to me. It was the glint of steel in his hand that caught the sun just right. I spun around with a half-second to spare. Morris lunged at me with hate-filled eyes, the shaggy mop of his hair stuck to his forehead with perspiration. 
I sidestepped his thrust and parried it with one of my own, sending him off balance. He stumbled forward before regaining his footing and lashing out at Dithers, cutting him in the arm. It didn't take long to notice the skirmish over the toppled wagon had stopped, clearly signaling the fact that it was a ruse. But Smith didn't care. He reached for his sidearm and fired at Morris, who had begun to fall back into the crowd. The bullet hit Morris in the chest, I am sure of it. I saw him fall, and then he was swarmed by the crowd as shouts arose and a heated exchange between Dithers and two other men ensued. I didn't see them carry Morris's body away by the time Dithers and Smith had dispersed the crowd. The only evidence that Mars had been there was a splotch of blood on stone. Tessa and Millie met us at the door, eyes brimming with concern. They relayed how they'd seen Sousa looking on with approval, counting out bills to a few ruffians who ran off with the men who'd fought over the toppled basket. The import of it became clear to us, and we watched our backs with increased vigilance. Was it the opium shipment we derailed? Was it the young girls who shuttled to safety? We never know why Sousa had it in for us. We only knew our environment bore a seething hostility, Every nook and cranny harbored those who would do us harm. Even as we sit now with that uneasy comfort among forced friends, I turn and see a cluster of people part ways near a table by the gaping window. Seated behind it is a figure from which I can't look away. With lowered brow and a burning scowl, a rakish woman stares at us, but it's in the slightly deranged fixation spread from cheekbone to cheekbone that I see through the disguise. It's Mars wearing a bobbed brown wig and a faded dress that hangs lifelessly over his skinny body. His narrow face is smeared with garish rouge. Mars rises and walks the 15 feet to our table with that same murderous stare leveled at us, but I'm without reply. I'm frozen in shock, strangled by the possibility that I'm seeing Mars alive before me. There's some deathly finality about the scene, some nightmare scenario that is inescapable. Smith turns just as Mars arrives. He looks up with an awkward glare until the moment of recognition dawns and he begins to protest, wide-eyed with the same disbelief that erupted inside me only moments ago, but Morris is too fast. He swipes with furious intent, stabbing a blade three times into Smith's chest in rapid succession. It's over before Dithers can drop his pipe, before Tessa or Millie can gasp. The pub erupts and our table devolves into pandemonium. There are knife swipes, grasping at limbs, lunging and leaning, and the crash of overturned chairs as we reel at the futility of it all. The slow, grinding de-evolution of our existence turns closer to despair right in front of me. I can see it. I can sense it with some warped sixth sense. This is the end. There is no way out. This is our truth now. Through that damnable blue haze of cigarette smoke, I see Tessa Ling over Smith's body, and I'm reminded of something I lamented to her only a few days ago in a low moment. I feel compelled to repeat it now. I fear this might be it for us. Just bullets and razor wire. And that's the last thing I said to her. Ooh, you ended it. With the prompt. I ended it with the prompt, yes. It, se- it seemed like a, a good way to end it. It really yeah, did. It, it sounded like an ending. It did. I was not expecting the, the, the rouge, uh, the dude in the rouge. Well. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. I like it. I like it. All right. We'll talk about it in a few. All right. So, um, I guess it's my turn. So, my name's Matt Shigarik. I, um. I don't know. I uh, actually stumbled back into writing after many years, I would say. I would say that um, uh, as a very young child, I was always like kind of fascinated with story. And then through my adult life, I just like I feel like I always had ideas and we always spoke about ideas, like particularly movies. There were always ideas floating around in my head and they never got written down. As I was completing a degree in film, 
uh, I started to uh, latch on to screenwriting pretty heavily. I always had the goal of being a teacher, and I decided that um, after discovering writing again that I, uh, I would see what it would take to, to teach writing, and now I am currently in a MFA program uh, to do just that, to get, uh, to get my master's in creative writing so that I could go on and, and teach it. So, um, yeah, that's me. So, I guess here we go, right? This is it. All right, so my very unoriginal, uninspiring title for this, as it sits on my computer, is Last Words. All right, here we go. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you, I'm a little nervous right now because like, this is the first time I've read out loud anything that I've written to anybody, really. All right, last words. The tips of her strawberry blonde hair just touched the cleft of her shoulder blades. It hadn't always been that short. When they had first met, it had spanned nearly the entire length of her back. It spoke of innocence. Hell, they had both been far more innocent back in the day. His mind wandered to the day she had surprised him with the haircut. The look on her face as she walked through the door brimmed with a newfound confidence, as if she had left any self-doubt she may have had in the discarded strands of hair on the salon floor. She had always been beautiful, but along with the new hairstyle came a gleam in her eyes that radiated raw sexuality. The moments that followed were a highlight of their physical relationship. It was something he would never forget in this lifetime. Yes, he thought to himself. The hair will be the next to go. He rose from the chair he had placed directly in front of her and bumped into the single bare light bulb that cast a warm glow over her as she slept. The fixture swung back and forth, inviting shadows to come forward and dance out of the dark corners of the basement. He walked silently across the concrete floor, being careful not to wake her. An old desk, bookcase, and pegboard served as his makeshift workshop in the corner of the unfinished room. Even though it was obvious to anyone that this hand-me-down furniture was far from ideal, it was organized and set up with a sense of pride that conveyed a sense of his meticulous nature. He picked up a soldering iron from the desktop and carefully tested the tip of it with his finger. Finding it cool to the touch, he began to wipe it down with a damp rag, held it up to the light to check his work, and placed it on the top shelf of the bookcase. He then scanned the shelf below and selected a worn leather tool wrap. He rolled it open on the desktop, revealing a set of brass tools. He pulled out a pair of long shears and carefully placed them upon his thumb and ring finger. He opened them slightly, examining them for any imperfections. A slight smile began to form at the corners of his mouth and he placed them on the top of the wrap. The second tool was a straight razor. He inspected this with the same attentiveness, but his smile began to fade as he noticed a small barb near the top of the blade. He pulled a whetstone and strap of leather from the top drawer of the desk and placed all three items on the desktop. The third and final item from the wrap was an antique brass comb. He ran his index finger across the teeth, reveling in its soft, subtle melody. His smile returned. He walked back over to where she sat and looked down upon her as she slept. He gently pushed her hair back behind her ears, first her right, then her left. She stirred a bit, and the chain linking her cuffed hands jingled slightly in her lap. He paused for a moment to watch her breathe. After he was sure she would not awaken, he circled around behind her and began to gently run the brass comb through her hair, pausing at the ends just before the strands fell free to admire its natural beauty one last time. Her head rose to face forward and she took a deep breath. He let the section of hair fall from his hands and he moved to retake his seat facing her. While it appeared that she was looking directly at him, he got the uneasy feeling that she was looking straight through him. Any emotion her twinkling eyes once held had effectively been removed. I didn't mean to wake you. She made no reaction and continued looking dead ahead. 
He took her hands into his and ran his fingers over her scabbed fingertips where her immaculate nails once were. He had rinsed them clean and now they lay drying on his workbench. He silently commended himself for the decision to use the soldering iron as it cauterized the wounds nicely, minimizing blood loss. He thought he saw her wince slightly as he inspected his work, but she didn't make a sound. He carefully placed her hands back into her lap, stood, and turned back towards his tools. He rummaged through a drawer that sat centered below the work surface. He quickly found what he was looking for, a small ball of rubber bands. He looked back at her over his shoulder and began counting to himself. He peeled off six bands and returned the ball to the drawer before closing it silently. He pulled the brass shears from the leather roll and slid them into his back pocket. Returning to his position behind her, he used the comb to part her hair with precision, expertly dividing it down the middle. He eyeballed a third of the hair on the left hemisphere, tied it off into a neat ponytail. He then split what remained on that side into two more partitions, creating three equal in size. She remained nearly motionless during the process, only responding to his gentle nudges that allowed him to complete his work. He used to love playing with her hair. Most nights, you would have found him sitting on the couch with her seated cross-legged on the floor in front of him, her head in his lap. They had kept a brush in the drawer of the end table in the living room, and he would stroke her head with it for hours as they watched television. The majority of the time, he wouldn't even be able to tell you what program was on, finding himself lost in the calming, rhythmic pattern of the repetitive brush strokes. But that was before. Shaking his head back into reality, he looked down to find that he had also divided the right side of her head into three equally proportioned ponytails. He nudged her head gently, first to the left and then to the right, carefully checking over his work. Satisfied, he exchanged the comb for the shears in his back pocket. The sharp blades made easy work of her locks, and within a matter of seconds, he found himself with six neat segments of hair in his hands. He took them to the workbench and laid them out individually alongside the nearly dry fingernails. He placed the tools back on top of the leather wrap. Taking a seat once again, he watched her as she stared aimlessly off into the distance. He wasn't sure how much time had passed, but he couldn't get the idea out of his head that she was still the woman he loved. Damn it. He stood up aggressively and walked back to the workbench, retrieving the straight razor. He hesitated slightly as he pushed the whetstone and leather strap aside, regardless of its need for a quick sharpening. Fuck it. He grabbed the back of the chair and dragged her over to a utility tub in the opposite corner of the basement. He leaned the chair back so that only her head was over the basin, leaving only two of its legs in contact with the floor. He used the hose attached to the tub's faucet and some old hand soap on the ledge to work what remained of her hair into a crude lather. He stopped the water and began to cleanly remove the patches of hair from her scalp. She continued to respond only to his touch, raising her head when he lifted it to shave the back and placing it back down as he finished, all without making a sound. Despite his careful touch, the final stroke of the razor broke the skin, bringing a small pool of blood to the surface of her scalp. Shit, he muttered to himself as he turned the water back on. He rinsed her head off with the hose and dropped it into the tub. Now flustered, he put a little too much force on the push meant to bring the chair back to its normal position, and he watched in slow motion as she fell forward. Unable to brace herself, her face met the concrete floor of the basement with an unsettling crunch. Yet she remained silent. He rushed over to her, lifting the chair upright. He moved around to face her and the grin returned to his face. Her nose was obviously broken, her face now twisted and jarred in a most unnatural way. Blood gushed from it, forcing her to take gasping breaths from her mouth. Her left front tooth had cracked in half. She began to wheeze as her breathing became more strained. At last, the beautiful woman he had once loved, would always love, was no longer clouding his vision. No. This was a more proper representation of the monster that she had become. It was time. 
He scanned the floor and quickly found the fragment of her tooth. He picked it up and walked over to the utility tub where he found the water still running. He rinsed it thoroughly and retrieved the razor that he had dropped during the commotion. He stopped the water and moved to place the tooth alongside the rest of his artifacts and placed the razor with his tools on his way back over to her. He stood directly in front of the light bulb, casting a menacing dark shadow over her. Her breathing was becoming more erratic as her mouth was also beginning to fill with blood. You know there was no other way. I know. Her eyes remained focused on a rusted drain cap on the floor in front of her. I'm sorry. As am I. That was the last thing he said to her. He pulled the chain on the light fixture, bathing the room in darkness. Her final screams would replace any previous memories he had of her. And there you have it. Wow. (laughs) So... Wow. Dude, I don't know if you folks remember when just like I'm maybe... shaking my head for you for those of you who aren't in the room who can see me. Um we approach things with a very different mindset in most cases, and I think that if um I think this might have been about the perfect way to to introduce y'all to that. Yeah, I I I'd agree. It, it it started out a little bit uh like this isn't what I'm expecting from you, you know? It's it's uh right. Sounds a little sing-songy and calm and sedate, and then uh, then soldering iron comes in. I'm like, okay, where 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 is this going? <laughs> and then the fingernails on the workbench. I knew we had we had uh, we'd crossed over. We we crossed a line at that point, yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, it was it was weird because like um, I think I think I came up with this prompt. I think this is my yeah, prompt. Yeah, it was. It was your idea. So, um, I don't recall where I heard the line, but like I saw it somewhere and I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And you, then, you could really take it anywhere. And I think, I think we saw that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Who's do you want to talk about first? Like, uh, I can go first. It's right. fine. So like w- when you first heard the, the prompt, like where'd, where'd your head go? Um, it didn't really, well, to be honest with you, it went... So I have all kinds of random little ideas in my head that some come to fruition, some don't. You know, it just had the thought of, uh, I think it was at work, walking in the stairwell. I'm like, it'd be a really interesting story to have somebody stuck in a stairwell. Sure. And there's something awful going on on either floor above and below. And I was thinking something military-esque, somebody with a gun or a weapon, yeah. something like that. Um, so I started to go down the path of writing that that story. And it was like... You know, I wasn't sure how I was going to fit the prompt in there, so to speak. Right. It was sort of like right. this guy maybe thinking about his wife at home or something. But um, what ended up happening is I had a dream. Um, and this particular story is more or less not verbatim in the literal sense, but verbatim in the sense of like, this is what my dream was. I had a dream that I was in some Baltic country, you know, sort of World War II-ish yeah. Soldiers um, sitting in this pub, um, this train coming through town. The only difference is in the train, there was actually rotting corpses on the train in addition to the living. But I thought that that someone would someone would dump the corpses off the train in real life. Right. I, this felt more like a realistic story to me. So I, I wrote that out of it. But um, the dead and dying and the, and the, the downtrodden and whatnot in sort of this war torn country. Um, and, you know, I'm one of these soldiers sitting in this pub at this table and um you know, we know that there's this fellow, and I obviously had to come up with a name for him, Morris, right. um, uh, who's out to get us, so to speak. And we knew he was he was dangerous, and 
you know, the way the dream ended was he, he came up, you know, dressed as a woman in disguise. We didn't see him. And he started stabbing everybody at the table. <laughs> Which is awesome. Well, it, I, I, I don't know if it's awesome, but it, this was the dream I had. And it was such a such a specific, vivid dream. And, I, you know, I woke up. I'm like, this is much better material. Because um, sure. quite often a lot of what what makes it into my stories um, is stuff that, that either comes via a dream. Yeah. You, have a, you have a weird dream about something or a lot of times it's influenced by music, which... Sure. It's a whole other conversation, but um, yeah. So I, I was like, "This I have to run with it." It's 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 like the story's laid out. It's short enough that it fits into the the word count and that kind of thing. So I, I ran with it. Yeah, and I was excited about it because I was. I, I mean, I was really caught off guard when you know the woman in the corner was you know yeah a dude. Yeah, that's that's how it was. I mean, it was this guy <laughs> was that like, like passing glance is just some just some woman, but then you know he walks up to the table and you're like, "Oh, we're in trouble," kind of thing. So. And just the, I mean, I'm so, you know, just coming, I, I come at all of this stuff. I think a little more visually, like I, I tend to leave, um, a lot of details to the imagination. Sure. You know, um, but the fact that you were being brutally stabbed by a dude, like, um, and we're talking like, what would, what would you say that like, um, like an era, like what time? I'm like, thinking like World War II-ish. Like World War II. Sort of like so it would be really out of place, really out of place for some like rugged dude to be wearing a wig and rouge. Uh, I probably, like, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't, like, it wasn't meant to be like a cross-dressing thing. It was no, a form but I mean, of disguise. But, for, I mean, but sure, but still like <laughs> anybody in that time, in that time period, probably wouldn't imagine meeting their demise. Probably not. By like like because I'm picture I'm like I'm visualizing uh, more. It's Morris, right? Mars. Mars. It's M A R I S. I think uh, Morris. The, okay. The, it's a um, it's a uh, a, La- a Latvian name, I believe. Yeah. Um, okay. And I, I believe the pronunciation is Morris. Okay, so Morris. Yes. Um, I'm I'm imagining him as like some like really like rugged like like if you saw him without the wig and the thing he would be like an intimidating figure. No, he's just he's a, a skinny kind of like rail of a guy, just like an angry young man basically. He's not he's Got not it. intimidating okay. physically. In the he's sense that he's imposing. He's just So he's not imposing. His erratic at all. his erratic nature and murderous bent is what makes him intimidating cuz you don't know what he's going to do. And he'll as you see has no, yeah, no, like, no qualms about stabbing people. No, he does not care. He does not no. give a... Well, I think we already broke the swearing rule on this because there were a couple of curse words. Like, I could, could probably bleep them out in my story, but yeah. Well, in your story, it's different. Maybe. I'm like, uh, honestly, I want to try Like, I want, I want people of all ages to, to listen to this. You but to maintain at the some same level time, you know, it, you, well, it, we need to maintain professionalism, but at the same time, you know, we're also removing people's fingernails fingernails with a soldering iron. Well, you are, not me. (laughs) I stopped at the knife. (laughs) And only because that was my dream, you know? It was, that's uh, awesome, though. And I actually didn't get stabbed in the dream. The dream ended before 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 that happened. He was well, stabbing he stabbed other in people dream, at the like, table. If you die in a dream, you die, right? Like, uh, that's, well, that's what they say. Well, I mean, I don't know how you can... Right? I don't know if you can prove that at all, but, like... No, certainly it's not. probably better that you woke up without being stabbed, sure. I would imagine. Well, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, everybody, I've only had a few people read mine before this day. No one's read mine. And, um, everybody's first question is like, what'd she do? 
Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good question. And uh, the answer is I have no idea. Like, I I couldn't come up with anything good. Like I knew once we decided to write this prompt, I was like, okay, somebody's getting killed. Like I knew that was happening. Like somebody is well, killing somebody else. Well, there's some sense else. of finality, kind of kind of suggested by that. Yeah, like somebody's gonna die. You know, but at the same time, like I I, I start I just kind of started writing. And I was like, I just kind of want to see where it goes. And maybe as I kind of get into the characters' heads, I'd figure out, like, what she did. And um, I couldn't come up with anything good. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to add anything that would add any sort of, um, like, political charge to it, you know? So, like, like, abortion was straight out, like, I ruled it out immediately. But, like, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I don't, I don't know what this woman could have done to this man for him to do this to her, but I'm glad he's doing it. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, a hope. So, so I, I just mean, kind of like, left it and I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to like kind of just take advantage of the, fo- the, the short fiction form. And like, I don't know if you necessarily need to give you don't, a reason. You don't. Like, I think, I think the beauty of flash fiction, especially, but really any short story is you get, you know, if you do like a slice of life kind of thing, it's just, you kind of get a glimpse and you, you, glean what you can glean and then you you kind of disappear from the it's story like you, so. it's like you're just writing a scene yeah kind of yeah. and yeah. i, I kind of like that so now it's just like i don't know what did she do what do you want her to, what do you want her to have done would be my question to anybody like who asked like it's just, i'll tell you what it was pretty bad yeah i mean you you clearly had to sit down and think about the types of things he's he's doing to her yeah and i want like you know, I, to create to create that question in the the reader's mind of like what awful thing could she have done that would prompt him to to do that? Because it's quite psychotic. Yeah, it's a, it's a little psychotic. Uh, a thing that I did do when I was like running through the editing process, <clears throat> as I was running through the editing process, this puberty thing's a bitch. Um, is I I had made a lot of references to her looks throughout the whole thing, and I didn't want it to be portrayed like he needed to make her ugly to kill her because he was already ugly. So she was already ugly. Yes. She already made herself ugly to him. Like, even though she was still beautiful, but like he couldn't like, he needed to do something to kind of just like forget the way she looks. Something that would allow him to cross that line. Like he was already doing little things like, you know, the fingernails. I'm sure that in all reality, that that's probably a pretty painful process. Getting your uh, your fingernails burned off with a soldering iron. Yeah. So like, that's pretty psychotic immediately but it still wasn't like it wasn't enough for him to like go through and actually end her life but for some reason the broken nose and the blood pooling in her mouth and shit was so score <laughs> oh it's it's it definitely so i i read a previous short story from you and i don't remember the name of it um I believe I called it no idling no idling right yeah. and it it totally was not what i would have expected from you because it was very Grounded and, and very much, uh, sure. you know, devoid of horror, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for, Th- this, this you delivered uh, as far as meeting my expectations. If anybody wants to read No Idling, by the way, I have that available for free on my website, and I'll give you that link later. But it's just MattShigarek.com. I'm actually going to give it to you now. But if anybody wants to read that, that's out there right now. I am uh, slowly trying to develop more of a uh, portfolio to share online and 
and also try to get out there into the publishing world hopefully one day but we're just going to see how it goes and i was hoping that this would be a way to kind of like um boost my writing productivity and and be able to have more work to share so yeah a month a month you're gonna have to produce i know um, i'm there in 1500 and, or a thousand to two thousand words i mean it's not a lot but no but it, it keeps it keeps me fresh too like i'm in the middle of a non-fiction thing right now so it's like it's still a creative nonfiction, but it's still kind of a different mindset. But sure. I have a, uh, I have a pretty good idea. No, no peeking at my notebook over here. But I can't this, read this? it. It's too small okay. anyway. Good because that has that has kind of my uh, my approach to our next prompt to next month's prompt. So, yeah, I, I haven't thought of a good idea yet. I um I'm still trying to finish up the. I'm almost done finishing up the, the draft of my current novel. In, you know, my current work in process, and the idea is that. You know, I wanted to give the month of August to, to finish that out, and then I'll take a look at the next prompt. Um, see yeah. see what I see where I go with it. I, I had the thought of maybe bringing in existing characters oh, from hey. other stories into it. Maybe well, but, that's interesting. But uh, again, don't have a solid idea yet, so I'll probably tackle that next month. Yeah, I'm 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 interested to start. I I, I think it's it's effectively. Um, trying to think of a good adjective to describe this it's well, don't um, spoil it it's got to be fresh yeah all right well there's the suspense but i got an idea and i'm pretty excited about writing it and i just got to figure out uh, a couple of things before i can get going so cool nice so um do we want to tease the next prompt or do we want to wait and reveal that to the to the listeners the next episode i'm indifferent i guess all right well you came up with this prompt so why don't you go ahead and just uh throw it out there for okay. everybody uh, next month's prompt, which will be episode one. Episode one. So one yes. is, how did I get here in this house? Dun, dun, dun. Right, yeah. You go anywhere you want with that. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. So, Although that could have worked for this one, too, probably. It probably if you wrote it from the wife's perspective. Oh, now that's interesting. That is, I didn't I'm, even think about yeah, doing that. You, but could, that's, you could have the whole story again from a different perspective. That is interesting. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to think about that, but that's, um, <laughs> yeah. God so damn it. <laughs> you can, you can find us uh, online, ianlewisfiction.com or mattchagaric.com. Do you want to spell that for them? Yeah, that's M-A-T-T-S-U-G-E-R-I-K.com. You could also find the podcast at promptlywrittenpodcast.com. And I think in the future, uh, what we would really like to see is for you, the listeners, to provide these prompts to us and make it more of an interactive thing. You can write along with us. Um, you could share that. Uh, I think we're going to toy around with opening up a public Slack group or a Reddit or something where you guys can talk to each other and share stories if you feel like writing them as well. You know, we'll we'll see how it goes. Maybe. We do reserve the right. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you vote on something dumb, we're not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, if you put out there like Aunt Martha's nipples or something like we're probably not going to do it. <laughs> But I mean, oh well. To be fair, like I'm I, do I might do it. <laughs> but yeah, we're gonna try to keep it PG, and you know, um, somebody has a poor Aunt Martha out there. They have bad yeah. thoughts in their head now. Yeah, good job, Matt. Sorry. Let's just keep it kind of innocent, you know. Let let, let us Is make innocent it as uh, soldering iron and fingernails. Yes, but let us like t- take the dark turn. We don't need the dark turn for us, you know. So. I don't know. Is that it? Are we good? I think that's it. All right. Well, uh, thank Thank you you for listening. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next month for episode one. All right. Later. Later.